Good morning and happy Valentine's Day. Today we are continuing our series uh, in Knowing God, uh, part seven, the incarnation God arrives. When you think of incarnation, if you're around church circles for any amount of time, you know that has something to do with Christmas. Uh, we didn't have a white Christmas. We've got a, a white flaky Valentine's Day. So it was a little delayed, but uh, right on time. Today, we're talking about the incarnation. Will you pray with me as we get started? Lord God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the technology that allows us to gather electronically in this medium. Lord God, I pray that you would bless our time in your word. Lord, your word does say that when two or more are gathered in your name, you're present to us, Lord. So even though we can't be together in person, we are together virtually, and we ask God that there be something in the words I've prepared that would be uh, meaningful, would land uh, someplace in someone's heart today, and be helpful, Lord, in our journey in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Incarnation is a core doctrine teaching that the second person of the Trinity, remember where we started, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the second person, the Son, became a human being. You know this. You, you've heard this. It's the incarnation. Incarnation. Becoming flesh. What does it really mean? In John's Gospel, the first line he says, in the beginning was the Word. That word, you'll see it's capital W. It means logos. It's referring to an ancient Greek understanding, thinking about the source of wisdom, the source of all reason and truth, that it was both imminent uh, and transcendent, that somewhere in the universe was this logos. And, and John says, oh, in the beginning was the logos, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so he's inviting us into this conversation, a little philosophy, a little theology. People are tracking with him at this point because they understand this concept as just that, a concept, an idea. But then he writes in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This would have blown their minds. Here John is combining this ancient Greek Gentile thinking with Jewish theology and understanding of God and bringing them together. But this concept of reason and truth, the agent of God that created all things, became a human person, the eternal Son of God. And not just becoming a, a human in form and then flashing in and out, but a true human being in every sense of the word of human, not just flesh, but but a will and mind and emotions. He became one of us, one person with two natures. Maybe you've heard this idea of Jesus being fully God and fully man, 100% divine and 100% human. The, the, the fancy theological term for this is the hypostatic union. Jesus in himself he wasn't schizophrenic. He wasn't losing his mind. He was fully divine in one nature and fully human 
and the other, all both in one person, neither diminishing the other. Jesus Christ, as we confess on Sundays, was conceived of the Virgin Mary, was born in Bethlehem, lived a perfect life, sinless life, performed signs and wonders, fulfilled prophecy, all for the purpose of, of redeeming sinful humanity and becoming the only mediator between God and humankind. Because he's our savior, our example, we want to we follow him, we want to live like him, we want to become more like him, we want to be living in this new life empowered by his spirit. And so the incarnation is, is more than just an idea or a concept. It's the very source of our faith. Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us now by his spirit. That's about it. We could, should we just wrap it up, guys? We, we got it. Is that, did we answer all the questions? Do you still have questions? Just one question? I, I've got all the questions. Wait, God became a human being? I mean, how long have you been coming to church where you just hear that and are like, oh yeah, that's just a, a normal thing that we all believe. Like, can you wrap your mind around that concept? Like, how, how divine is Jesus really? How human is Jesus? And, and if we could even begin to make sense of that, what difference does it make? What what difference does this incarnation and, and Christmas in February make for us anyway? Well, let's just try back up and let me try for just a few minutes to answer at least a couple of the questions, even while we recognize there is still a lot of mystery. First question, how divine is Jesus? Well, the Bible teaches Jesus isn't merely a man who was a lot like God. He wasn't simply a, a very good man or a very godly man or someone who was walking very closely with God, someone who had become so transcendent that he was God-like or, or that he was someone who was given temporarily some special power. There's all kinds of teachings out there and, and you can get on YouTube and see any array of things that the church has called for 2,000 years a series of heresies, or maybe it only happened uh, for a short amount of time, he got that power, and then he lost his decoder ring. Nope, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says Jesus is divine. Let's just look at a couple of passages. Here, here's one, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. One of, arguably, the earliest letters written to a church, to the church in Colossae, uh, and Paul writes this, the Son is the image of the invisible God. So if you want to know what God looks like, look to Jesus. And he is the firstborn over all of creation. So, ah, firstborn, was he created? Like, no, no, his positional placement in all of creation. He's over it all. For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, that covers a lot of things, doesn't it? But not all. Does it cover all things? The next verse, it says, all things were created through him. He was the agent and for him. He is the Lord. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you really had time to break that down and look at each of those phrases, you see how absolutely complete that argument is in a couple of verses of the divinity of Christ. Another way the Bible teaches that Jesus is God is by showing that he carries all the attributes of God. Jesus always knew what was going on. Jesus always had all the power necessary. He was always in control. He was ruling over everything. He could rule over nature, over disease. He could command all things to his own need as he so chose. And he said that he was divine. I mean, who says that? What kind of person would we say is loving and caring and thoughtful, genuine and a genius, brilliant and helpful, and yet makes such an amazing claim as to say that he is God, that he never began to exist, that he always existed, that he never will cease to exist. In other words, everything God is, Jesus is, according to Scripture and according to Jesus' own words. Here's another passage, and we'll look at it twice. We'll just look at the first part. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 7. In this passage, if you look in your, in your Bible, you'll see it's written in sort of a poetic format. It's because it's actually thought to be one of the earliest creeds in the church. That is, one of the earliest ways of, of celebrating and worshiping God. And Paul writes this. He's trying to help the church really think through their relationships with one another and with others, and calling them to follow Jesus. And he writes, being in the very nature of God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, I like... The NIV translation, in some regards, ESV we sometimes use in other regards. This, where, this is where I think they get it right. The, the ESV is a more literal translation, but it translates this line of he made himself nothing. It says he emptied himself. And so it can cause a bit of confusion. Well, what does it mean that he emptied himself? It's as if he gave up some of his attributes. What would that look like? How, how does one give up one's attributes? Well, the NIV it's more of a thought-for-thought thought translation. It helps with the translation by saying he emptied himself. So it doesn't mean that he somehow no longer was God. It's a way of saying that he became a nobody. He didn't see holding on to his high position in heaven, in the throne room of God, something to be held on to for his own sake. He he gave that up. He became a nobody for our sake. Paul's using this as a way of teaching the people of Philippi of what it means to follow Jesus. What an astonishing self-humiliation his arrival was. Becoming one of us. Becoming one of us. And not really like one of us, wouldn't you say? We live very comfortable lives. I know I certainly do. 
I'm here in this well-appointed, well-lit, well-heated room with clothes on my back, a warm meal waiting me. I get to drive in car that I own on streets that are paved. I mean, if you think about it, in ancient times, if you could describe what modern life in Maple Valley, Washington was like, or it would be like in the future, we would look like aliens, wouldn't we? Maybe godlike. This technology that we have. And yet Jesus arrived truly in the human condition. A condition that I dare say most of us watching this morning have not ever known. He was poor. He was a refugee. He was homeless. Not many of us have experienced those things. Not many of us know what the true human experience is like even now, even in our own region, even in our own nation, let alone around the globe. But Jesus knows the human experience. So how human is Jesus? We, we, we get that he was divine. We looked at the passages of his divinity in John and Colossians and, and Philippians. But how human was Jesus? Well, the Bible says Jesus was human and he was not superhuman and he wasn't faking being human. He wasn't bulletproof. He didn't have bulletproof skin, although that would be pretty cool to have bulletproof skin. But, but no, he was not a comic book hero. He was a real human being. When he was born, he cried like babies cry to be changed and to be fed. And when he grew up, he was a dude who needed a shower just like dudes do and everyone else does. And when he worked hard all day and labored with Joseph doing carpentry, his muscles ached. When he was cold at night, he shivered. And during the sun, if he was out too much in the sun, he would get sunburned. He was human. So here are two passages for you to check on. And these are all also in our weekly Bible study. If you're watching for the first time, there are links on our website uh, to the, the weekly study that our small groups are going through. And you're welcome to join one of our small groups. We'd love to connect with you. But here are two passages from the book of Hebrews. Here's one. Chapter 2, verse 17. It says, it says that Jesus was fully human in every way. Karen, what does that cover? Does that cover everything? What do you think? Pretty much. Hebrews 4.15 says it this way. He was tempted in every way. <laughs> if you have little kids, if, you, if, if you've have, yeah, I know, speaking to our camera, he's got little kids. Have they been tempted in every way? They know temptation. Yeah, we all do. We all do. It's part of the human condition. And yet Jesus never gave in to temptation. To save humanity, Jesus had to be made just like every one of us in every respect, except our sin. The Son of God didn't become like us. He actually was one of us. What a great God 
we have. So yes, the Bible says Jesus is fully divine. There's all manner of scripture. I've only covered a couple of them. We could go deeper into that. And yes, Jesus was fully human in every way we can see, and yet he, he, wasn't, he didn't sin. He wasn't tempted in a way that he gave into that temptation. What does the incarnation then mean for us right now? Why, why celebrate it, consider it, think on it in the midst of the series of knowing God when shouldn't this just be left for Christmas time? A couple of thoughts. No other faith, no other religion says that God became flesh. The incarnation means God went to infinite lengths to make himself one whom we can know personally. The whole midst of the series of knowing God, that's one of the core things of our church's mission is to know God more deeply. What an incredible concept here. Right in the middle of this series, part seven, to know that God wants us to know him. That's what the incarnation is all about. God wanting us to know him, to be close to him. So what if he is God? What if Jesus really is God. Well, for starters, if Jesus is God, it's not, it's not enough simply to believe him or to respect him or even to obey him. He must be worshipped, adored, honored, revered. Everything we do in life should center around him. If he is God in flesh and it's never happened before and it will never happen again, it should change everything that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The incarnation should fuel our worship, the purpose of our lives, to glory in his beauty. We should find our satisfaction in knowing him. That's why it changes everything to know Jesus personally, not simply as a concept or a philosophy or one of many teachers we follow or abide by. But God. Colossians 2, 8 to 10, it says this. See to it that, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Are there any hollow or deceptive philosophies out there that are taking people captive, tripping people up? What do you think? If you can name a few which depend on human tradition and, and the elemental spiritual forces of this world. They all fit in those categories. The things that trip people up, hollow, deceptive philosophies, either based on traditions that are handed down or, or the latest, greatest craze of what's happening in the zeitgeist of the world. Paul's saying to the church at Colossae 2,000 years ago, you're at a fork in the road. You can either go the way of the world in these hollow, deceptive ways of the world, or, it says, rather than on Christ. Verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. We are so easily deceived these days 
by hollow and deceptive philosophies. You just hear the same lies over and over and over again in different mediums, and we begin to believe they're true. We seek after those things. They ultimately prove themselves to be hollow and shallow. And he says the word captive. They take us captive. But only in Christ can we have fullness. If Jesus is God, he must be the priority in our life. The things that he says ought to be a priority, ought to be top of our list. Otherwise, if he's not, then let's just wrap it up. Corey, let's just shut it down. Guys, seriously, turn off the lights. Let's just go home. If he's not who he says he is, then let's just cancel Jesus. I'm done. I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll, I don't know what I'll do for a living, but this is over. This is just a big sham. What's C.S. Lewis say? He's either, he's either a, a A lunatic? What did he say? A liar? Or he's the real deal. He's the Lord. If he is who he says he is, the most sensible, logical, practical thing to do is to have him at the center of your life. Cheryl was just sharing in in a home group the other night about a really meaningful uh, conversation that her dad had once witnessing for, to someone. This is years ago, but it really left a, an indelible mark in our family when we consider friendship evangelism, when we consider sharing uh, our faith with other people, when we consider the concept of incarnational ministry. Like, what does it really mean to be like Jesus to our neighbors, the people around us? What does it mean to follow his lead of, of being a servant and giving to others and, and not being dazzled by the the glitz and glamour of the world, but saying, you know, if, if, if God can leave heaven and come down here, then who cares what this world can offer? All those things can sum up in this incredible story of her dad talking to someone about faith, and the other person was skeptical but still listening. And, and my father-in-law, Lee Smith, said to this man, he said, you know, if I'm wrong, meaning, meaning I've put Jesus at the center of my life and... and uh, it, choose not to be, it turned out not to be true. If I'm wrong, the worst that's happened is, well, I've spent 50 years living a, a pretty moral life, caring for my family, giving away a lot of, of money and resources to help people in need, medical, dental, education, and all the rest. He said, but if, but if you're wrong, you're going to spend eternity apart from God. If Jesus is who he says he is, the absolute most logical, reasonable, truthful thing would be to give him our full allegiance. And if Jesus is God, we now live, if we've entered into faith with him, with irreplaceable, real hope. Hope no matter what happens in life. Hope no matter what the condition or circumstance. Because he promises someday all of the disease, the virus, the cancer, 
the suffering, the injustice in the world will be made right again. He says we are moving towards that day when all things will be made new. And he calls that new thing paradise. If Jesus is God, then then salvation is by grace alone. Every other religion, the founder was a human being sent by God or, or came to enlightenment in God and then was sent to then show us the way. Just give us a list. Tell us what to do. But in Christ Jesus, God has arrived. We don't have to ascend to him. We don't have to climb a ladder. We don't have to climb a mountain. He comes down to us. Salvation is by grace alone. We don't need the prophet to show us the five steps or the ten steps or the seven ways. No, no. He has come and said, I am taking you to be with me. His personal arrival means he didn't just tell us what to do to be saved, but he did it for us that we could not do ourselves. The second half of that passage, Philippians 2, 8 to 11. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The incarnation means God was willing to empty himself, to become a nobody, to give up his glory and power and live humbly as a servant. He became human. And if Jesus was human, that means we can identify with him. And it means he knows what you're going through. God descended into this world. He became vulnerable. He suffered and he died for all humankind. He is God with us. And he knows the experience of hunger, danger, injustice, rejection, torture, suffering, and death. And that's what the incarnation means. In my sin, in things that I've caused, in my separation from God, this perfect one came to live the life I couldn't live, to pay a debt that I couldn't afford, to bring me all the way home, to bring you home, to be your stand-in, to be your substitute. Next week, Pastor Frank's going to continue our series. He's going to talk about the cross. God dies. I asked Pastor Frank several months ago which passage or which theme in our series he wanted to preach on. He said, I'm most passionate about preaching on the cross. He'll give us a wonderful insight and wonder of over 70 years of walking with Jesus and what it means that the perfect one died for us on a cross. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this understanding of the incarnation. Lord Jesus, that you left heaven to come 
to humble yourself, to be a servant, to show us the way, to live the perfect life, to die on the cross, to be buried, to rise again on the third day, and then to send your Holy Spirit to empower us, Lord, to live in this new life. We pray, God, that the understanding of your full divinity and your full humanity, the understanding of the incarnation, Lord, God would inform us, would then send us out. And the concept of incarnational ministry, Lord God, that we would be the hands and feet of the gospel. Lord God, that you would empower your, your people to go about to serve. Lord God, this day that we mark as a, as a tradition of Valentine's Day, Lord God, we want to we turn to you and say, you are the most important one in our hearts. We love you. We thank you, Lord, for all that you are, all that you've done for us, all that you bless us with, for your character and attributes, Lord. Bless those that watch this, this gathering today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for watching.